I'll give you just a couple minutes to think while I, while I hype a couple of things, all right? So uh, <clears throat> we're going to get to your embarrassing stories in a minute. All right, so right now uh, I wanted to highlight this. It's something I actually got in a couple of weeks ago and forgot that I had it. So I, I was reminded today that we had this in. Uh, and I got a couple of copies, uh, which my wife is reading one now. So I got this copy for you. It's called uh, Habits of the Household, uh, Practicing the Story of God in Everyday Family Rhythms. Uh, so if you're like me, adulting's hard, right? And if you're a dad uh, and a husband or a mom and a, and a wife or whatever your role is in the family or even just a kid, it's really hard to be like, how do you navigate screen time, right? What does that look like for you and your family? Or uh, how do you pray together as a family? Or what are you really doing as husband and wife to stay connected amidst work and scheduling and all the crazy mess that goes on in our lives? Um, how do you develop a life of, of, of prayer and rhythm of, of uh, spiritual practices in your kids, even from, the, from one, right, from the very beginning? How does this actually happen? I'll tell you what, it does not happen by accident, all right? It will not happen accidentally. If you ever come into life thinking, oh, I'm a Jesus follower, and, and, and you live your life that way, and then you start having kids, and then you're like, oh, it's just going to happen through osmosis. No. All right, that is not going to work. It will not work. Let me just let you know from someone with many children, uh, had many experiences that is not good. They're just going to pick up on what you know or what you or think about what you think about. All right, you have to be intentional about how you're living your life. And if you think your spouse is on the same page of, as you in, in regards to spirituality and spiritual rhythms and practices, guess what? Probably not. All right, don't just assume that either. Okay, so this is a good way to be able to get into rhythms where you're at least having these discussions and at least thinking through what it looks like in a practical setting, not just talking about it, but like, how do you live it, right? Because we can talk about it all you want, but until it gets down to brass tacks of like, how do you do it day in and day out, this will be a really helpful resource for that, okay? It's not too long, all right, for those of you who don't like reading, uh, but it is really helpful to, be, to be think through things uh, that you may not have had an opportunity to think through before and give you a framework for those discussions, uh, which I think is half the battle, right? How do you even start having these conversations, right? What does this look like? And so this is a really, really, really good resource. Cannot recommend it enough. Um, so feel free. This is a lending library thing here at Faith. You can pick it up and take it with you. Just bring it back whenever you're done so somebody else can do it. As soon as my wife has finished reading it, I'll make sure we get the other copy in here too. So there's a couple of copies, but I'll leave it down here on the giant speaker and you can pick it up if you want to. All right. Uh, the other thing I want to quickly highlight is that uh, I want to thank Hunter for making me a rock, which is really cool. It said faith on it. And then two, uh, I want to thank Kim as she's helped uh, increasingly improve our space with her beautiful artwork. This was one we did together. This was our sip and paint uh, art uh, that she led the class through last year, which we got to do again. That was so much fun. Uh, but she did a really good job of putting some new artwork. So maybe you can look up some of her new stuff in the, in the cafe uh, and invite friends in on Saturday to come, to come do some art critiquing and and appreciation on the weekend as well. So I just want to highlight those things, okay? So I've delayed long enough. We do need to get some of microphone. Hey, hey, Nick, I got a question for you, Nick. Can you help me out, brother? Can you walk, do you mind walking around and putting microphones on people's faces? Or are you like, no, I don't want to do that? Nick. <laughs> That's a, <laughs> I'm going to start randomly doing that during messages. Hey, Rick, what's going on? All right. Okay, so here's the question. Uh, describe just once, <laughs> just once, that you had the opportunity to do the right thing, but instead you either took an easy way out or you just kind of went along with the crowd, caved to social pressure, something like that. Was just one, one thing, one time, one person. Dave's going to kick us off. Thank you, because who wants to talk about this? <laughs> yeah, I, um, I was trying to think through what, which one I would share. <laughs> the one that came to my mind was like you do stuff as, as kids and then peer pressure kind of uh, sets in and mm -hmm. I feel really ashamed that I did a, a dine and dash oh so yeah guilty about that gotcha alright the I opportunity to pay but I didn't there you go awesome thank you for sharing awesome thank you for sharing that it's awesome that you shared it <laughs> um, there's a lot to choose from unfortunately <laughs> most of when we were younger but um I was thinking when I was a young adult and I went away for a business trip to Houston, mm -hmm. um, a lot of the streets are one-way streets. Oh, yeah. And um, there wasn't GPS at the time. Oh. And so we were going around in a circle, and I may or may not want, have gone 
the wrong way down a one-way street on purpose. <laughs> Out of frustration of like, they're kids, just, I'm just taking it, right? Okay. Uh, good thing you didn't get smashed. That was good. Looks like that didn't happen. Uh, all right, here we go. When I was in high school, I was like the only one that had a car. Mm-hmm. So we had a big basketball game that afternoon, and our typing teacher was out. So my friend's like, oh, come on, let's cut, let's cut, let's cut, mm-hmm. let's cut. So I got all dressed for the, the game, mm-hmm. and I was a senior, and my coach goes, where were you last period? Oh, I was in typing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she goes, oh, you were? I was like, yeah. She goes, well, I covered typing, and none of you guys were in there. So uh, you could just go to detention in your basketball uniform. Uh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, jeez. Okay. <laughs> All right. Anybody else? Those are great. Walt's got one in the back. And Phil, we got two back to back. So while I was at Bible College, um, uh, our pastor was very fastidious about us making sure that we turned to both morning and afternoon or evening services. And that evening, there was a uh, sporting tournament being played, and uh, I really wanted to watch it. So what I did is I got the bus to go to the evening uh, uh, evening sermon and then made sure that he saw me and said, hey, how's it going? And then basically ditched out the back door, walked two and a half miles to the nearest bar where they were playing out on the big screen and sat there for the rest of the evening and then just meandered home. <laughs> well, you showed face. That's, that's impressive. <laughs> when I was a senior in high school, I had a couple of buddies of mine. They were three or four years older than I was. One was in the Air Force, and uh, one Sunday night, he said, I'd like to have some deer meat. And I knew that what that was coming, and I knew it was time for me to leave, Mm -hmm. especially because my father was a part-time deputy here in this county, Mm -hmm. but I didn't. I hopped up. I was a driver. (laughs) We went up to West Rupert. And I got a 30-30 that went off in front of my face right there. My ears rang for a week. Yeah. But I couldn't tell my parents. <laughs> what am I going to do? You know, what's wrong with you? My ears are ringing. Where are your ears ring? Well, PJ just shot a rock, you know. <laughs> it ain't going to work that way. So, yeah, yeah I, re- I, I regretted that. <laughs> Did your hearing come back? <laughs> huh? Did, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. anybody else those are uh, appreciate those those are great stories good deal thank you for being honest oh we got one more kim's got one all right thank you kim this was a long time ago when i was a young stupid child i love how all these stories are this is so long ago i don't ever do these things now anyway go ahead it's not just you Oh, yeah. And it was just starting to get uh, dusk. So we're all, you know, we, we take the vegetables and then we all start running. And I'm running and running. And I come around the corner of a house and there was a tricycle there. Mm. Didn't see it. Oh. Whack my, uh, my foot on it. Mm-hmm. Come, long story short, I broke my big toe and had a full leg cast on. Oh. So I learned my lesson. Oh. <laughs> I love my vegetables, but I buy them now. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the lesson was going to be watch out for tricycles. All right, all right, two different things. <laughs> That's a parents with kids lesson. <laughs> all right, anybody else? There we go. Dawn's got one. Thank you. <clears throat> I don't have one. Oh, you don't have one. <laughs> I had the opportunity to do the right thing, so I did. <laughs> I said that I didn't have one. <laughs> <laughs> all right, here we go. So there was this kid in school for me, all right? <clears throat> and it took me a long time to come up with one of these. No, I'm just joking. There was this kid in school, uh, his name was Rocky, all right? Now, any kid in school named Rocky has already got a bad start for himself, right? Because this isn't the 80s, I was, this was the 90s, all right? So Rocky, his name was Rocky. Now, Rocky was a smart guy. He's really hyper-intelligent. His mom and dad were just really hyper-intelligent folks and uh, great people. Uh, but Rocky was really awkward, all right? Just really awkward. And um, uh, by most other kids' definitions, just really weird, right? Just by the common standard of the day, he was just like, Rocky's kind of off, right? Um, I don't know if you guys, anybody know kids like that growing up? You had like some kid in your class that's like, yeah, they're not quite the same as everybody else, right? Maybe you were that kid, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, you, you might not have known, right? Yeah. 
so Rocky was that guy. Now, he wasn't a nerd, right? He wasn't like just hyper intelligent and like studious, although he was smart. He wasn't a jock. He wasn't athletic at all. Uh, he wasn't a cool kid at all. Uh, he wasn't even a class clown, right? Sometimes people work themselves out of their awkwardness by being a class clown, but he wasn't any of those things. He didn't fit into any category. He was in the I don't fit into anything category, really. Um, and so uh, I knew Rocky pretty well. I'd spent all my years uh, in high school, particularly in band, and I had a lot of, of band friends. Now, a lot of that has a social stigma in our culture, all band geek. And all in band, band for our school, like everybody was in it, so that was not as, as uh, stigmatized, thankfully. But we had band friends I hang out with. But then I also had this awkward group of friends that I'd hung out with outside of school. Uh, most of the time that was okay, right? So the awkward kids and, and me, we'd hang out on the weekend together, usually because one of them had an in-ground pool at his parents' house, and so that was a really good excuse on hot Georgia summers to be like, I don't care how awkward you are, I need an in-ground pool to jump in during the summertime, because I didn't have one, right? Uh, but then when we get to school, we just kind of spread out, right? Especially me, I kind of navigate to these other groups uh, in, in school. And that went on for a little while, until we got to, to high school where we started to share a lunch break together. And we'd all come into the cafeteria at the same time. And you know this, uh, I think I've spoken about this before, but you know, high school particularly is clicky, right? And it was in my experience. I have no idea what it's like now. In my experience, it was. So everybody, when lunch break happens, you filter in and then everybody kind of breaks off into their own tables, right? All your own groups kind of center off on each other. You got the jocks over here, right? You got the attractive people over here. Uh, and then you got Rocky and the awkward kids <laughs> at the other table. And I, I was this in-betweener, right? Where I wasn't really fully awkward. At least I didn't think I was. Uh, and I wasn't really, you know, cool. I wasn't a big sports guy either. Uh, so every day at lunch, I had this decision to make as I walk into the space, right? Everybody's broken off into groups. And I had the decision. Do I sit with the awkward kids, right? And get labeled uh, with them as the awkward guy among other awkward guys? Or do I try to squeeze in somewhere else and try to fit in there? Uh, what made this decision harder was girls, right? Because there's hardly any girls dating any awkward guys, okay? That's just how this works, all right? You girls, if you remember, maybe you remember your life back when you were uh, that long ago for some of you or very recently for others, but you're probably not dating the awkward guys, and the awkward guys know you're not dating them, all right, just so you know. So I scan the room when I'm walking in, and I'm like, okay, is there any girl that I have any potential shot with right now in this room right now? And if there was, I wasn't sitting over there. I was not sitting with the awkward group. I was doing my best to squeeze into any other group I could possibly squeeze in because I did not want to be labeled with, with Rocky and the awkward kids. Uh, shamefully, I did that. Multiple times I did that, uh, off and on throughout my high school um, life that I'd do that. And finally, I started dating a girl who was, didn't mind about the awkward kids, and so we sat with awkward kids together. But for a while, there was this whole shameful experience where I'm making this hard decision of, like, should I stay with my friends that I, that I do connect with outside of, of class, or do I just turn the other way a little bit, right? Um, looking back, it shouldn't have mattered, right? I think we all know this, right? The, the, they weren't bad people. They just didn't fit in. Uh, they deserve to be sat with just like everybody else deserved to be sat with. But in my desire to fit in, I didn't do the right thing. I did what served me best. That's what I was looking out for. The series that we're going to jump into this week and then actually going forward for the next couple of weeks, few weeks, is going to be focused on people who struggled with similar moments in their lives, all right? Now, we're reading the Bible, so there's no lunchroom cafeteria stories in the Bible, but similar, all right? Similar moments, moments of decision. Moments uh, where they're, they're forced to choose between what's best for them and what's actually best. So when faced with difficult decisions, what we're going to find is how did they respond to this, right? And how do we? How do we do this? So we're going to do that by starting right at the very beginning of the Exodus narrative, okay? It's going to be Exodus chapter 1, and we're going to cover a few verses here. They're all going to be up on the screen as we jump through these, so you can read these along with me together. So it's Exodus chapter 1. We're going to start in verses 1 through 5, all right? So let's uh, watch, listen, read along with me as we do this together. It starts off with this. It said, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. 
all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, and Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, the writer of Exodus assumes you know a lot of stuff here, and maybe you've read Genesis lately, or maybe you haven't, so I'm going to briefly summarize here, uh, since we're coming in this fresh this morning, that the story goes like this from the very beginning, right? The very beginning, God creates new humans. He creates uh, human and life, Adam and Eve, right? And he gives them a choice. He says, obey me and be blessed, be fruitful, multiply, fill the land, uh, learn to live in it rightly by living with me, God, and, and, and I'm going to form you and, and make you into what you are really supposed to be. Or you can choose to take for yourself what you think is right, to define what is right and wrong on your terms, and you can leave God in the dust, and you can live out those consequences. As most of us have already described, we all make bad decisions. So did Adam and Eve, and they took the wrong path, right? They rebelled against God. They said, no, we're good. Uh, This looks better. And so they took of the fruit of knowledge. They ate. They chose their own way to define right and wrong of their own, and they paid the price. Now, as they rejected God, God did not completely reject them because he would go on to choose one man from among humanity named Abraham. And through Abraham and and his family, God was going to restore that blessing that Adam and Eve gave up in the garden to back to all the people. So Abraham has this promise that he's going to have a son. God says, I'm going to give you a son and he's going to have a son and they're going to have multiple children, so many that you can't even count them all. Abraham trusts God and he has a son named Isaac. Isaac trusts God, and he has a son named Jacob, who would later be renamed Israel. And he trusts God, and he has lots of kids. And we just listed their names here. Late in his life, in Jacob slash Israel's life, there was a famine in the land they lived in. And, and God was so gracious to them, he had already sent one of their sons ahead. And it was named Joseph. And he was going to go into Egypt. And Joseph was sent as a slave, but would rise to power in Egypt to second in command of the whole country. And so when their famine was in the other land and the family came to him, eventually, through, through some other interesting stories, it worked out that he was able to bring the whole family to Egypt to be able to live in a new land that had plenty to eat, plenty of room to grow, plenty of room to thrive. So 70 people at that point, all children of Jacob, packed up. They immigrate to Egypt and they're welcomed and given land to farm, and everything is going really good, all right? And then we read in Exodus chapter 1, verse 6, it says this. It said, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. So what we see here is despite avoiding death by famine, (laughs) this verse serves as a reminder that outside of Eden, death is inevitable. It's a continual reminder in that story. It's always present with us, right? And now Joseph here, he was a good leader. He was an awesome leader. He did awesome things for Egypt. He did awesome things for his family. He had a lot of power. And now that he's gone, the question then arises, if you're reading through the story, like, oh, shoot, now Joseph's gone. He was the one that set all this up. He made this happen. And it's, what's going to happen to all these people, right? What happened to these people who moved here to this place? Will they be kicked out? Will they be seen as, as unwelcome since they're not Egyptians themselves? They're different, right? Are they going to be welcomed in or, or pushed away? And verse 7 helps us out. It says, but the people of Israel, they were fruitful and they increased greatly. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was was filled with them, it says. Now, when you're reading this, and again, if you haven't read Genesis in a while, you might miss this, so I'll bring it up to you. This should start to sound familiar. Let me read it again. But the people of Israel were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. That sounds pretty familiar to me. What, what does that sound like to you? Anybody remember where you might have heard this before? It's okay if you don't know the exact place. Well, generally. Anybody? Nobody wants to be wrong? Okay, that's fine. That's right. Be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 1 language, right? This is very bad. This is the very beginning. Creation language here. Matter of fact, Genesis 1.28 says God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish and the birds and everything that moves on the earth. This is all yours to do what you're supposed to do with it, right? And so it's the same language is back here. He's echoing back to Genesis 1. God's living up to his word, to Abraham, and to his people of Israel. So they're now living out the Eden blessing within Egypt. 
What this is is a reminder to us that even though generations pass, even though people in our lives that are really faithful to God, who may be influential to us, when they pass away, the blessing of God doesn't stop. His promises hold true. He is faithful. God blessed them in Canaan, where they were before. There's a famine. He blesses them with a new home. They come to Egypt. Joseph dies. Their, their protection, who they had, was going was to speak for them. So the Egyptians were gone. Now what happens? God blesses them anyway. All right? And they begin to fill the land. What happens is, I think, and I, I think this is applicable to us today, because what happens in my life anyway is that we get so worried, so worried when life shifts around us. If I can't get enough work, am I going to have enough money to provide for my family? If I don't work, all right, if I'm a workaholic and I'm like, I don't work all the time. If I don't work, who am I? Right? Who am I if I can't be at the job all the time? If, uh, you know, if I can't get to work because I'm sick, that's going to put me behind. If I barely have enough for myself, how am I going to help somebody in need? Because I know plenty of people who are in need. How am I going to provide for them, right? When, when, here's what happens. We get all those questions. We start to, life changes, situations happen, and we can, there's out of our control, and we're like, man, I don't know if I'm going to be okay. Whatever that label is in your life, I don't know if I'm going to be okay, right? But here's the thing. When we're obedient, when we're obedient, despite our circumstances, God is faithful to keep his blessing on us. Now, that's going to be a recurring theme. So if you didn't hear that that time, it'll come back around. We're going to hear it again. But just remember that. So Joseph dies, all that generation with him. The people of Israel grow. They are fruitful. They multiply. God blesses them. They fill the land. But it also says they do something else. It says they maod in Hebrew. It says they grew exceedingly strong, exceedingly strong. Now, that's different than what you hear in Genesis 1. There's a new element added to this blessing, right? So they're multiplying like rabbits. They're extremely healthy. They're strong. Everything is looking real good. So let's see how this turns out for them in verse 8, all right? Everything's looking good right now. Let's look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Oh, okay, all right, so let's think through this, all right, this could go one or two ways, right? There's this new guy in charge who doesn't know these people, uh, who doesn't know all the good things Joseph did for Egypt, but maybe he's going to be okay with that, right? Maybe he's going to be like, hey, these guys are doing some good work, I'll just let them go, right? Or maybe not, I don't know, let's see how this goes. Exodus 1 verse 9 says this, and he said to his people, I love this language, not the people, his people, he says to his people, behold, the people of Israel they're too many, and they're too mighty for us. Now, while the previous pharaoh, the previous king, saw God's blessing as a blessing to his country, the new pharaoh sees it as a curse, right? There are too many. They're not just filling the land, they're overfilling it in his eyes. They're not just strong, they're too strong in his eyes, right? They're not weak and reliant on the power of Egypt. They're able to fend for themselves. And to him, this is a problem. This is a big problem. So he gathers his council around and he says this in verse 10. He says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Let me say that one again. He says, come, let us deal shrewdly or, or craftily with them. Lest they multiply. And, and if war breaks out and they join our enemies and they fight against us and, and escape, right? We, we've got to deal craftily because we got a problem, guys. We got a big growing problem here. In other words, we have to look out for our own best interests, and they're not in it, essentially. They speak different than us. They look different than us. They think and act different than us. They worship a different God than we do, right? And so if we get attacked, they got no reason to join us, right? They have every reason to turn against us. They're going to be looking at an opportunity to take what is ours, right? Now, none of us here are kings, last time I checked, but we do this similar thing. We do it all the time. We isolate ourselves, we, we insulate ourselves with those who think and act and believe like we do, and we grow anxious and we grow fearful and we see outsiders as threats. Uh, and we, and, and, and at best, we see them as threats. At, at worst, we see them as people, or sorry, at worst, we see them as threats. At best, we see them as people who don't care about us. Like if somebody's different than me, I don't know if they have my interests at heart, at heart. I, I'm not sure if I can trust them. And so we get into this mindset of like, they're different, so I'm going to treat them accordingly. I don't know, 
right? Paul, uh, part of what's going on here in this story, rather, and what's going on in our lives when we, we live this way, it ties back to mindsets. We talked about this in Ephesians, but it really applies here. The Israelites, they're born into the land into, and shaped by uh, God's blessing, right? We just talked about that. They fill, they multiply, they do all these things. They're living a, a life that is shaped by God's blessing. They have a blessing and abundance mindset, essentially. They trust, even though it's hard, that if others don't have their best interests at hearts, that God does. They trust that he's going to provide so they can live generously and they can live at peace even with those who aren't their family because they know that God will provide for them no matter what. That's a blessing in abundance mindset. That's the people who have grown, been raised and grown into saying, man, we are filling, we are multiplying. There's enough food to have more kids. There's enough uh, work to go around for everybody to be employed. There's so much stuff here for us that we can continue to spread out and expand and grow. That's a blessing and abundance mindset. That's a mindset that doesn't say, oh, we need to keep and hoard. It says, man, we can be generous. I can give to my neighbor. I can do all these things, right? Because here's the thing. Generosity, generosity doesn't come from abundance. Let me say that again. Generosity doesn't come from abundance. Because if you wait to give when you have enough, you're never going to give. I guarantee it. Generosity doesn't come from abundance. Generosity comes from trust. When you learn to trust God, you learn that no matter how much you have or don't have, it's enough. Not just to bless your family, but to bless other families. Because you know that God will provide. So we, who live in a blessing and abundance mentality, a mindset, know that we can share and that we can be a blessing to our neighbors even if they don't have our best interest at heart. Because we trust that through God's power and His provision, there will be enough, no matter what. Pharaoh, on the other hand, he's not shaped by God's blessing. Pharaoh isn't living in a blessing and abundance mindset. He's affected by the blessing. He sees it. People in his land are living in it, and they're prospering, but he isn't living with blessing in his life. He doesn't have this mindset. What he does have is a scarcity mindset. Is a scarcity mindset. And what we do when we get in a mindset of scarcity is our trust in God is either non-existent or is very small. We trust God as far as we have are comfortable trusting him. So you're saying, well, I trust him because I can't you know, be around my wife and kids all the time, so I trust that he's going to take care of them whenever they're not in my sight. I'm comfortable enough with that. But I don't trust him with all my finances because, man, I should be working hard to provide enough for my family. And if I'm not working hard enough, then that doesn't mean he's not going to provide enough. He's not going to give if I'm not giving. And we don't trust him to take care of that. We live in the scarcity mindset. Trust is an issue. If you are the one totally in control and responsible for your own well-being and the well-being of those around you and your resources, whether they're great in relation to others or not, they're never going to be enough. You're never going to have enough if you're living on your own strength and ability to accomplish anything in life, period. Because in that mindset, in a scarcity mindset, there's never enough. Never enough. What did the Bible say? He said they blessed, they were filling, they were multiplying, they were exceedingly strong. There was enough. There was more than enough. God was giving them more than enough. And Pharaoh said, there's too many, too mighty. He doesn't see it as a blessing. He sees it as a curse. He says, man, they're sucking up resources. They're not providing value. They're sucking up what I have. Because his mindset wasn't there's always going to be enough. His mindset is there's only so much to have. And I've got to hoard what I've got and keep it close and make sure that we control this problem. Uh, and so it's not a blessing. It's a problem in his mind. In the mindset that we have when we're in the scarcity mindset is that people become competitors and not cooperators. In that mindset, generosity is a struggle because the person is trapped. Maybe you've been in this position. I've been in there. We're trapped in this constant state of fear of anything you have just might be taken from you. It's not only if you matter have enough. It's like what I have might even be taken from me. 
And again, just like with blessing in abundance, the scarcity issue isn't about the resources. Pharaoh has more resources than the Israelites even did. All right? He had more. They had a small portion of the land that they were being blessed in. He had the whole doggone country. But he lacked the key resources, the key resource, which was trust in the God that had blessed them. Are we living shaped by trusting God in the mindset of blessing or abundance? Or are we bent by a scarcity mindset? I'll leave you to figure that part out on your own. There's also something else at play here. This is a biblical, bi- bigger biblical idea going on when you're reading this. Pharaoh uses a phrase that you may be familiar with. Again, if you heard the book of Genesis, it all goes back to Genesis 1 through 3, guys. If you've heard this before, he uses a very similar phrase. He says, come, let us deal shrewdly or craftily with them. Now, put on your thinking gear again. Back in the beginning of the whole story, there was a character who dealt craftily. Anybody remember who that was? Mm-hmm. Some of you got it. Snake, serpent. Matter of fact, uh, I'm not going to read it, but it's there. Genesis uh, 3, you'll see the snake. It says the snake was the, the craftiest of all the animals that God had created, right? The snake in the garden was the crafty one. So here we have Pharaoh. He says, let us deal craftily with them. Here we have Pharaoh who's under the influence of and playing the role in this story of that serpent. He becomes the usurper, or serper, seeking to, to gain power and authority over God's chosen people. So he sets out and he says, I'm going to enslave them, right? So the serpent in the garden, he deceives Adam and Eve. They make a bad choice and they're enslaved by their choice. So Pharaoh sets out to enslave the Israelites. Exodus 1 verse 11 says, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict and oppress them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. So he sets masters over them and he forces them to build uh, uh, store cities, which is places that hold food and supplies for the Egyptians and for their armies. So instead of sharing the blessing, he seeks to harness it and to control it to benefit him at their expense. And along with that, he's hoping that he's going to work them to death. Because here's the thing, I didn't write this, this is something that just hit me. If you think work is going to save you, be prepared to die because work will not save you. Work will kill you. Work's going to kill you in the end. He wants to work him to death. So does it work? Let's see. Verse 12. The more they were oppressed, love this. It's my favorite. I, 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 we prayed on this last, last uh, Thursday. Verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, is it up here? Can you read it with me? The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread abroad. And even the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So now it's not just Pharaoh. Now everybody's scared of the people of Israel. See, Pharaoh had hoped to work them to death, but he'd only made them stronger because here's the deal. The enemy will try to overburden you. He will try to play on your kindness by throwing you person after person who's going to ask something of you and make you feel like, man, if I got to give to them and if I don't give to them, I'm going to feel guilty about it. And it'll be so much that you can't handle it. And then it's going to stress you out. and He's going to try to work you to death. All these things are going to be there. And it's in those moments that we have all the more reason to be able to grab hold, to be able to grab hold, not of your mom and dad, not of your kids, not of your friends who may offer a temporary reprieve or a night out to take your mind off of things, but a grab hold of Jesus and a grab hold of your brothers and sisters in Christ for encouragement, for godly wisdom and advice, for burden sharing, right? For a reminder of the blessing of God and of the need for trusting in his providence to draw on strength to be strengthened, to experience supernatural blessing again, because it says the more persecution they experienced, the stronger they grew together. When you're following and trusting in Jesus, when persecution hits in your life, when it feels like I don't have enough, you've got a choice. The choice is to isolate, to say, well, I've got to work harder. I've got to cut back. I've got to do all these things to provide more for myself in the moments of scarcity. I'm not being blessed. I'm, I'm living under a curse. I have to adapt to that and adjust, and I've got to take care of me and my own, right? And you could do that. 
and never work yourself out of that hole. Or you come to your brothers and sisters in Christ. You come to Jesus and you say, man, guys, I'm struggling, right? And they say, yeah, me too. And you share that burden together. And it might not be that every financial burden in that moment is lifted off of you. It might not be that every emotional burden in that moment is lifted off of you. But what it does is it helps build that trust that God is a God of promise and of faithfulness and of blessing. And he is not going to leave you alone in that moment. And he is not going to leave you without a resource to pull from. So he gives us each other. Sometimes we say, oh, you just need to pray more. You need to, you need to read your Bible more. You need to trust Jesus more. Well, I don't like anything unless you're putting it into practice by sitting around with other brothers and sisters who are having to do the exact same thing. Because sometimes that resource he's giving you is that person that's sitting to your right or to your left. Amen. And you can walk away from that and wonder why you're struggling. Or you can lean into it and say, man, I need more trust. I need more trust in the person sitting next to me. I need more trust in Jesus because I know I have to be reminded. I have to, I have to be reminded that God is faithful. He will provide. And I have to I own that mindset. I have to know that that is a blessing and abundance mindset. I might not see it all the time, but it doesn't change that it's there. Pharaoh, the Egyptians here, they don't give up. They double down though, right? It says verse 13 to 14. So, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So Pharaoh's working them hard. And while this is going on, he gets another idea. He says, man, if I can't work them to death as adults, I'll kill them as babies. Exodus 1, 15 and 16. And here we finally get into what I wanted to talk about. That's all just good. I could not give, you, not give you all that, right? I couldn't just go to verse 15 and 16 and talk about these people I really want to talk about today. I had to give you all the rest of that stuff because it's too good not to give you. But here's what I need to talk to you about today. Exodus 1, 15 and 16 says this. The king of Egypt, Egypt, Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. Great name, by the way. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, let her live. Now here, from Pharaoh's point of view, this is a good plan. Killing the males at birth would mean there would be less people to actually revolt against them, right? The men were going to be the ones in the army or the ones that would take up arms. And so if you put down the, the men before they're even born, they can't grow up to revolt against you. Good plan from his perspective. And then letting the females live, it's not like, oh, females, whatever, who cares? Nope, letting the females live would mean they could be taken as slave wives by Egyptian men, and then the children they would have would become Egyptian. It's pretty savvy, pretty crafty, right? Kill the guys off, keep the women around, and then you've taken care of this whole problem, right? So he calls the people responsible for all the pregnant mamas in Israel, and he says, uh, here's what you got to do. He calls these two midwives especially. These wouldn't only be the only two. There'd have been many more, but these are two of them. Shifra and Pua, whose names mean beautiful and sparkle or splendor, either one, which are much better names <laughs> from our translation, right? Beautiful and splendor, what great names. Uh, but what we have here... Again, everything ties back to Genesis 3, 1 through 3. Beautiful and splendor, Shifra and Pua here are the Eve figures in the story. Their life calling is to bring more life into the world. Eve's name was life in Hebrew. Their job is to facilitate that Eden blessing of fruitfulness and a multiplication. And here they are, standing in a high place, because Pharaoh, when it came down to them, he'd call them up to the palace. They'd be standing in a high place, in a royal place, next to a snake. And he's pressing them to forsake their calling of bringing life and instead choose evil and death that follows. Get all this imagery back again? This is super, super good stuff, right? They're like Eve, standing in the garden next to the tree with a snake. Choose, by, choose, choose death. It's not death, though, really. You're not going to really die. You're Pharaoh. Do this. Do this. You'll live. Don't worry about the ones that die. You'll live. I want you to put yourselves in their shoes for a moment. These women, as they're called up above the high court, the high king of all of an incredibly powerful nation, I know it's hard to put ourselves in that position because it's just not something we normally would do, but try to think about that, right? You're, you're sitting there. How are you feeling? You don't have to tell me out loud, but just think about it. How are you feeling? 
They've been given instructions directly from a king, the person who had authority over life and death in the land. To do something that goes against God's standard of right and wrong. If I'm them, I'm terrified in that moment. Because to disobey the king was to choose their own death. Or at the very least, if they don't get killed for not doing it, they're very least going to live a life of shame and, and fear that something might happen down the road because of the disobedience. They were terrified, more likely. But they had another fear that was bigger than that one. Verse 17a. It says, but the midwives feared God. But the midwives feared God. They trusted, they revered, they respected the God of their fathers, the one responsible for all the blessing they've been getting. And Pharaoh may have had a great earthly power over them, but they had a new, rather, of a greater power than him. They knew the one who truly brought life or death. They saw it happen every day in their profession. Yet here, they're still caught in a moment of decision. Who would they obey? Would they trust the invisible God who, while he had provided blessing, had also allowed them to be in the situation they're in. All right? We can't look at this one-sided, right? You can't just say, well, the people were being blessed and all oh, this is good. They should be thanking God for the position they're in. Or they're also being worked to slaves. They're also now these two midwives put in position to have to go against their, their conscience and against God's law to be able to live in a different way than they know they're supposed to. And God's allowing these things in their life. He's allowing them to suffer. He's allowing the people to be persecuted. How can a loving God allow that to happen? That's all a common question you hear from people. And we can't get into that answer. <laughs> but this is the things they're dealing with. So will they trust in the invisible God who had given them blessing, but had also provided and allowed for this persecution in their lives? Or would they be enslaved? Would they obey Pharaoh, even they knew it was the wrong thing to do? Hard choices in very hard times. I want you to think about it. Don't answer me out loud. Just what would you do? What do you, what do you think you might do? We talked about this earlier. I know we've all grown older and wiser. <laughs> but when you were young, would you make the right decision? Exodus one seventeen. The text doesn't linger. <laughs> the text keeps moving, so we keep moving. Exodus 1.17 says, But the midwives fear God. I just read that. And because they fear God, they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. They don't give in to the snake. They trust and, and, and obey God over Pharaoh. They're like the anti-Eve, <laughs> right? Eve messes up in the beginning, forfeits life for death, and they make the, choose the opposite. They choose rightly. They trust God over the snake, and they bring life, allow life to flourish. They choose to step out of their comfort, to step up to evil, to step to oppression, to, this, to not be an agent of destruction and death despite those consequences that they might have. And they, that wouldn't have been a one-time choice. I want you to understand that. It wasn't like they made that decision in the throne room. Maybe they did, but they still had to face it every time they sat at the birth stool and every time a, a baby came out of a mom's womb and, and was coming into the world, they had to make that decision when it was a boy or a girl of like, do I do what I'm supposed to do? What, do I do what I'm commanded to do? Or do I do what I know God is commanding me to do? Every birth, they're making that decision all the time. Every male they let live would increase their chances they'd either be dead or punished. So every time they let somebody else live was another day they were getting closer to their potential death. Now, you may not have a pharaoh in your life, but you may have a pharaoh-sized problem, right? You may have that, that enemy in your ear who whispers death to you. We're telling you to, to tell off your family or your coworker or your friend or telling you your problems are too big and your resources are really small. He may be whispering, just take the easy way out. Go back to the thing, that person that's abused you. Get back in that relationship. Go ahead and get back to that person who's offended you because it's going to make you feel empowered. Or you know what? Don't, do any, don't deal with any of it. Just, just walk away. Will you give in? 
Will you give in? Will we cave to convenience and comfort? Will we believe the lies that those are the best way to handle things? Or will you fear God more than the consequences? Will you trust Him even over your best judgment? Will you step away from the easy solution? Will you step out to do the right thing despite hard circumstances, knowing that it might kill you, if not physically, then relationally or emotionally? What will we do? Let's see the result of their choices. Maybe that'll help make us our choice a little easier. Exodus 1, 18, 19. It says, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and he said, why have you done this and let the male children live? Right? I told you to do something. Why didn't you follow through? Then the midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. Man, they are vigorous. They give birth before the midwives even get there. We can't even show up. By the time we get there, they're already popping babies out. This is incredible. There just this is a miracle happening here. Right? <laughs> Pharaoh calls them out for the disobedience. He says, why? Why are you not doing what I told you to do? And Pharaoh is intentionally made to look like an idiot in this story, by the way. Just so you know, as the, Hebrew, when the Hebrew writers are putting this together. They're not, they're not doing this accidentally. But he doesn't help himself. So he says, why are you doing this? And they, they respond by counter-deceiving the deceiver. You see that? We're trying to kill him, but they're just having babies too fast, right? It's just happening too fast. I love the way they're clever and insulting at the same time, by the way. It, just, it was always funny to me. They said, man, we can't make it in time, chief. You know, it's just, they're just, these Hebrew women, they are stronger than those Egyptian women, right? They pop that baby out in the fields while they're working. They just can't keep on going while y'all Egyptian women have to labor for hours in bed somewhere, right? These, these Hebrews are on it, man. And so they're, <laughs> so they're deceiving the deceiver because, you know, obviously they had a job for a reason. All these Hebrew women weren't having babies without the midwives. Uh, but they're, she's also throwing shade on the Egyptians. They're like, you guys are slow. What's wrong with y'all? Right? These are strong people, right? By the way, this is legitimately, ha- in real life, if you ever look into, if, I don't know why you would do it, but if you looked into birthing, uh, as I've had the joy of, of watching my, my spouse uh, look into and actually participate in many times, uh, in other countries, they do legitimately have babies just out in fields, just right there. It's done. They don't keep, they don't stop working. They just have it put it on the back, strap it on, and move on. We'll just keep going. Blows everybody's mind here, uh, but they're, they've worked, right? So this, this isn't a marathon to them. This is another day at work, right? Uh, but anyway, so just a little aside for you. You can take that one home and chew on it. So <laughs> here they are. The women come up. Man, I love it. As bold as they were, what is even more impressive to me is their obedience. And I'm going to get ready to shut up, so you know I'm almost done here. But what's impressive to me is their obedience. They served God in their community despite the risk to their own lives and to their own prosperity and to their own security. 1 Samuel 15, 22, it's not up on the screen. It says, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. You see, in God's economy, you can't hang your hat on sacrifice. You can't say, man, I sacrificially serve in the church. Man, I sacrificially serve in the community. I sacrificially give out of my finances and time to others. I do that, man. I'm willing to put it on the line. I'm willing to to cut back so others can have. God isn't satisfied with sacrifice. He's looking for obedience. He's looking for a people who do the right thing, who are faithful to him and to each other, and who say yes to God things and not just good things. And that let their yes be yes by following through and being reliable. That's what God is expecting. And what happens when you obey? Exodus 1, 20, 21 happens. It says this. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and they grew strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. The writer doesn't say what Pharaoh did to him, which I find ironic and interesting. We would think, man, what is Pharaoh going to do now they disobeyed Pharaoh? The writer doesn't care what Pharaoh did. Because what was more important was what God did. Again, it shows that sometimes we think there are things in our lives that have power over us and think they control us and think they can manipulate us into doing things we're not supposed to do and think they can do that for us because they have this power. But when you trust that God is more powerful, 
than any other thing in this world, and you don't have to worry about what they're going to do. You just trust what God's going to do. Because how God dealt with them is more important. Because their obedience they, uh, and service to God and to the people, because they did the right thing, the whole community prospered. The whole thing. And it grew stronger. And the midwives themselves, they were blessed, not just with more children to help other moms birth, but with more children of their own. You see, because when you're, obey, when you're, when you're obedient, your obedience, you're stepping out and doing the right thing, even when things are going wrong around you, blesses others. It allows God to work through your gifts, through your talents, through your resources to make others strong, and he blesses you in the process. Notice the sequence. The community grew stronger, and then God blessed them with families. Both are important. It's about others first, and you get a residual blessing, which is more than enough. But don't miss the others part. We so rushed to, oh, I need to be blessed. I need a blessing. I need my finances this week. I need my provision this week. I need you to trust. I need all this stuff from me, God. Me, 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 me. And he says, it's not about you. It's about others. If you're, not, if you're getting so much or want so much because you need so much, again, you're never going to have enough and you're never going to give. What you need to start doing is saying, man, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to tithe. I'm going to offer. I'm going to give to somebody else first. And, and then God's going to provide for me after. That's how that works. You, you can't go against how God work, makes the world work and, make, and think it's going to work for you. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> I promise you. But you had to be obedient. You had to do the right thing, even when it's hard. All the time. Now, seekers this morning, if you're here with us and you're like, man, you know how easy it is to do the wrong thing? <laughs> It's very easy, right? It's easy just to go with the flow, right? Just to listen to that little voice because who's going to know, right? Or, you know, if they do know, who's going to care? Everybody does it. And God's saying, I'm looking for faithful. I'm looking for obedience. And I'm going to bless your obedience. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to fill you. I'm going to multiply you. Your family's going to be blessed. More importantly, those around you are going to be blessed because you're faithful and obedient to me. So if you're a seeker and you're like, man, I walked in here, maybe I wasn't ready for that, but I need that. It starts by recognizing that we're all sinners. We have all done the wrong thing. We had a few people speak up and admit it. For one point in their lives, well, guess what? There's about a thousand other stories and every single person in this room has one, me included. It's not about perfect people. We've all messed up. We've all intentionally and unintentionally sinned against God and against other people. What it is, is about despite the fact that we are sinners, that God stepped down in the human form of Jesus to live a perfect life that we can't live, to die the death on the cross that we deserve and raised him to new life, conquering the powers that hold us captive, conquering death and giving us a life eternal and a life abundant now. And if you're ready for that, it's already here. You just have to reach out and say, yes, I want it. I want to obey that. I want to be obedient. I want to trust you, Jesus. We're going to give you a chance to do that in just a minute. For those of you who aren't ready, you're like, yeah, I don't know. Keep watching this series. Stepping out, doing things, or doing the right things when things go wrong. Keep, keep listening into this. It's going to challenge you in different ways. We're going to talk about another story next week about this and how it's a different angle. And then Walt's got some great stuff later that's going to really challenge us. And so just keep listening in and see how does this work in reality because it, it does happen. We can prove positive that it does. Keep listening in. For believers, we'll close with this. There's a paradox with the purposes of God. Just like the Israelites, we're clearly called out and set apart. If you read with us through Ephesians, you saw that. But we're, that doesn't mean we're granted immediate or unending success. Okay? Just as they face persecution and hardship, so will we. Yet despite persecution, they thrived and they grew strong, right? What we want to do is we want to avoid pain, we want to avoid suffering, we want to avoid conflict. And what we think, I believe, I've heard other people say this, I've experienced this in my life, is that we often get discouraged by that. 
Because when we see strife and failure, we think God's not with us. We think that if any strife, any failure, all that is a, is a lack of God's favor in our lives, not a sign of God's favor. Yet the opposite is actually true. Now, there are times in your life where you're going to make some bad choices and you're going to live with those bad consequences because that's how God set the world up to work, right? You don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card every time you want one. You have to live with what you did. And we bring plenty of strife on ourselves. But when we're surrendered and we're obedient, don't think all strife goes away. It doesn't. Because God's favor isn't a promise of ease, but it's a promise of blessing in the midst of striving. So don't look at your life when things get are great and think, man, God is blessing me. And, and then when things go sideways, just say, man, God is not here. Stay surrendered, stay obedient, do the right thing despite the circumstances and trust that God is still faithful and he's calling each one of us to be. Despite the persecution, they grew stronger together. Lord, let it be so with us. Let's pray. For the seekers, you ready to respond to Christ? Here's how you do this. You just pray. You just call out to God through a heartfelt prayer. And you say words like these. And I had to be these words, just words like these. You say, dear Jesus, first, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry. I know there's things I've done where I've taken the easy way out. And I know I was supposed to do something else, but I didn't. I know there was times in my life where you clearly called on me. You've clearly called me to a relationship with you, to say yes to you and to all of you, to, to be able to read and look into your scripture and, and, and pray and, and, and dive deep into a real relationship with you. And I've put that off for far too long. But today, Lord, I need you. I want to be obedient to you. Lord, help me be obedient. Help me live life under blessing and abundance and not from scarcity trusting that you will take care of me and mine so that I can take care and be a blessing to others. Now, if that's you and you prayed that prayer or words like it, I want to encourage you, do not leave here today before you, before you leave, before online or in person. Find me, Walt's in the back, John's up front, Leo's on the side of you. Find one of the people in this church, amongst many, who want to see you grow and thrive in that new relationship. If you're online, make sure you let us know that you're uh, responding to that. We will follow up with you too. Because it's not just about where you are in the moment. It's about a journey that requires all of us working together. All right? So we'll follow up with you. For believers and everyone else as we close, let's pray this one final prayer together. Dear Heavenly Father God, Lord, I thank you. Lord, that you are God who is faithful. God, because I am not always faithful. Lord, I thank you that you are God who gives to us, Lord, we don't deserve to be given to. God, you are so gracious and so merciful. God, you pour out that love on us. You show that in the cross, God. But every day is another day where we are blown away. I'm blown away by your love and mercy and grace. Lord, I don't deserve to breathe today, but yet I woke up breathing. Lord, and that's on you. Lord, I don't deserve the great kids and the wife and the family I have. God, you gave them to me, and that's on you. Lord, I don't deserve the job you've given me and the calling you've placed on my life. And yet, God, that's on you. You've done that. God, when things get tough, Lord, when things get tough in each person's life here, Lord, I pray, God, that we rely and trust on you, in you. That we rely and trust in each other. That we don't quit or give up and back out, but we press in, that we step up, that we step out of our comfort zones and say, Lord, I need to see you today. And that we come together and we commit to each other for a greater level than before, Jesus. That we don't leave it on the wayside, but that we press in, Lord, expecting you to show up, God. And Lord, despite the persecution, despite the hard times that we all go through, despite the, all the opportunities when we have the easy way out, God, I pray, Lord, that you stir in our spirits by your spirit in us, God, that we will not settle for less than heaven on earth, that we will not settle for less than the kingdom of God here and now, that we will not settle less than for new human identities, people living out a different life, a different way, not how we lived it before, not how culture wants us to do it, not how we grew up living it, but how you have called us to do it here and now, that you are filling us with your spirit, providing, uh, giving us everything that we need, Lord. Let us trust you and be obedient in that trust despite our circumstances, Jesus, day in and day out. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen and amen.
Thank you so much, church, for being with us, especially those online as we get ready to close out here. Uh, and thank you for being with us. Make sure you're checking us out next Sunday. Part two is coming up. And then also prayer on Thursdays at 630 on Facebook. Love for you to be here for that. Uh, so make sure you're checking that out. And we'll see you guys next time. <laughs>